You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a former Green Beret who went on to work in the special operations world as a contractor and now does personal security for a name you will know. I'll tell you who that is in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you guys again to please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Smash that like button there. Give a thumbs up to all the content. Certainly appreciate you guys watching. Uh, and leave some comments on the YouTube page as well. I'll try to get back to you all of them as often as I can. Please as well continue to leave Apple reviews and reviews wherever you get this podcast, whether it's Google Play, Stitcher, uh, Spotify. Uh, tell us why you love the show. Uh, continue that algorithm, make it work in our favor, and help grow this Hazard Ground community. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can buy whatever you want, as much as you want. In fact, spend a lot. Why? Because we get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then I donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. Easy way for you guys to support veterans charities just by doing normal Amazon shopping that you do every day anyway. And you can help out veterans charities just by doing it. So appreciate you guys help and support as always reach out to the show producer at hazard is the way to uh, get in touch with us and uh, send us an email if you'd like to and love the feedback from you guys as you keep them coming in here um, on a daily basis. So thank you again for all that. All right. This week's guest, as I told you, a former Green Beret spent five years on active duty, retired as or got out of the military as a staff sergeant, then spent 12 years as a contractor in the special operations world doing some intelligence work. We'll discuss some of those assignments as well. He had one deployment to Afghanistan and as a member of 7th Group Special Forces, had a lot of other deployments in South America where 7th Group operates, then went on to be a personal security specialist working for and providing security for none other than Kid Rock. Yes, Ba-wa-ta-ba, da-bang-da-bang, diggy-diggy, diggy-dub-da-boogies-up, jump-da-boogie. I think I got all that right. Anyway, uh, he has now written a book called The Asset Mindset. Uh, this is a book that it goes into self-awareness, self-manifestation, personal development. Here's Daniel Fielding joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Daniel, welcome, and thank you for being here. Hey, Mark. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. I think I got it all right. Ba-wa-ta-ba, da-bang-da-bang, diggy-diggy, diggy-dip-da-boogie-up, yeah. jump-da-boogie. You just say the American badass, you know. Yeah, that's too. I've known as that. Uh, with the is the, is the song that i remember the, the the first the first song i remember from kid rock yeah that was the big breakout on the devil without a cause absolutely yeah, way back when uh it, it, it gotta be an interesting figure to hang around every day uh i would assume oh, that absolutely. days aren't boring no not at all i can say i was up till you know about 2 a.m just the other night before i went to bed okay. and i was up early bringing the kids to school but it's it's a kid rock life and I don't mind it. You know, I'm used to <laughs> things having to adapt, improvise and overcome. Yes. That's what we did in special forces. So it's kind of fitting that I get to be with kid rock. Right. The, the, the kid, the kid rock lifestyle. Uh, not many people get to say that they, uh, they have lived the kid rock lifestyle, but anyway, um, your personal story for the military uh, started back, you know, several years ago and joining the, the military and, and, and getting to the green parades. Why'd you end up signing for the army? It was 9-11. I was one of those people after 9-11 that was really moved. I watched the second tower get hit live. The first one was, you know, burning. I was eating breakfast, watching the news, doing my morning routine. And then I saw Bird 2, you know, that second plane come in and hit Tower 2. And I was like, all right, this is not an accident. Something's up, as we all knew then. And that day changed the world, and it changed my life, and it changed my life path. How I knew old? I had to do something. How old were you when 9-11 happened? I was 27. I turned 28 in basic training. I was older than wow. one of my drill sergeants. He's like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> I had a college degree. I had a real estate license. I was working in my family's you know, construction business. And I walked away from all that. And you know, my mom wasn't very happy at first, but she ended up being a really proud mama in the end. Yeah, um, I, I guess... Is that the only objection that you saw from the family and friends or everybody kind of supported it given it was 9-11? Uh, they were very supportive. Um, my mother, she had it the worst out of everybody. My dad was 
proud and bummed. You know, he was going to miss me. I was working on the family business. So that bothered him that I wasn't going to be there anymore. But I told him, you know, this was just a greater, bigger calling. Like, I always had this desire to give back. When I graduated from college, I went to the Dominican Republic and I built an orphanage and stayed down there and lived in the Dominican. And then I came back and I was just doing the work stuff, like I said. So 9-11 really stoked the fire like, okay, I need to do more. And that was the moment that changed my life. I started doing research, trying to figure out where did I want to go with my life? Was I going to join the Navy, Army, Marines? And I did enough research and I learned about the Green Berets and what they do and how they live with the indigenous people or local nationals and our force multipliers. And I loved unconventional warfare and I had just lived in the Dominican with locals. So I was like, you know what? I want to be a Green Beret. That, and I didn't like the idea of maybe being stuck on a sub as a Navy SEAL. (laughs) Um, Did you get to enlist with a Green Beret contract? Yes, it was called a 18 X-ray contract. So like in algebra, the X is an unknown. That's what the 18X contract was. So I went in first as an 11 Bravo. I went through infantry school down in Benning. And then you have to obviously graduate that. Then I went to airborne school, graduated airborne school. That's when I went to Fort Bragg, currently known as Fort Liberty. Yes. And Fort Benning is now Fort Moore in case uh, anybody... Oh, yeah, my bad. Wanted, that's okay. Don't worry about it. It's, I'm, I'm aging Georgia. myself, right? <laughs> I, I live in Georgia. It's, I still say Fort Benning. Um, regardless, I, we won't get into that discussion. But that said, um, so you, you go through, when you get to Fort Bragg, how quickly do you get to assessment and selection? Pretty quick. They did a preparation course. And after the preparation course, if you made it through, which that had, I think, more, the preparation course had over 50% dropout. Did, did you ever actually sign into a unit, though, at Bragg, or no? Um, I signed into the student company, or Delta okay. Company of SWIC. Got which it. Is the John okay. F. Kennedy okay. Special Warfare School. Yep. yep. Okay. So uh, you never actually went to a unit and then had to leave the unit and go to uh, no. Special Forces Assessment and Selection. Okay. Yeah. So, as long as I kept passing, you're, I you're, kept staying in the pipeline. If I failed, then I would go to regular Army, and I probably would have gone to the 82nd, as a lot of the dropouts did. Got it. Okay. So you passed everything up to this point. Going into assessment and selection, I know you said you'd read up on the Green Brace. How much did you read up on that whole process to try to understand it? A lot. A real lot. I bought like five, six books on There was the Army who School books, like talked about Ranger School. And I just picked brains of everybody that I came across. And I had some really good mentors in the military, some Green Berets that because I was a little older, They kind of were like paying attention to me and I would ask questions. That was one of the things my dad always taught me. He said, find mentors and people that have walked the path before you or gone down that road. They can tell you pitfalls and things to avoid or what to do and maybe give you a couple shortcuts. So that's what I did. So when I went to selection, I was pretty well prepared and ready. It was very demanding. You don't eat right. You don't sleep right. You're cold. You don't know what the challenges are. You don't know how long they are. You don't know what the time requirements are. And it's pretty much you doing the best you can. Except at the end, we did have a team week where then you were evaluated by peers and got rated, you know, if you were a good team member or if you were, you know, a Blue Falcon, so to speak. Right, right. Um, So I always find it interesting because there are so many Green Berets I've, I've spoken to of the guys who did the reading up ahead of time and the guys who didn't. I've always I would always I would love to sit down and just compare notes between the two of you guys, the two the two groups of people who bothered to read up on it and bothered didn't. And, and it's the same thing, you know, I asked the same question about, you know, going through um, you know, hell week, right? When you when you get into uh when you get into the course and it's like, you know, there are people who wanted to know about it and there are other people who didn't who just said, "Look, all I ever focused on was the clock, and I knew eventually the clock was going to keep ticking, and I would survive until the next morning, and that's all I cared about. And other people were like, "Well, I knew this, I knew this, I knew this, I knew this," and I, you know, I was mentally prepared for all of it. So, you know, uh, it, it's just how everybody's mind works differently. I think that's that's always impressive. So uh, you get the assessment and selection; they obviously choose you, and now you're headed off to the Q course, correct? Correct. 
What was the last I will one? say something while, before we jump too far away with assessment and selection. One of the things that you keyed on was mindset. And obviously my book's about mindset, but the people who made it had the mindset where I am doing this. It's going to either happen or it's going to kill me or I'm going to be so broken. I can't go forward. It's never the people like, Oh, I'm going to try this. I'm going to see if I'm good enough because right there, they don't have that mindset or the heart to just fight through. Like I watched, I talk about my book, a guy with two broken feet run the PT test and pass it to get through a phase. Like I saw a guy quit because he had a quarter size blister on his heel. And he's like, Oh, I can't do it anymore. Like, no, it's, it's all mindset. It's heart. It's the will and the warrior spirit inside the person. Cause I had another guy that went through perfect 300 PT score. He was actually one of my cadre at airborne school. And he was talking about to be airborne and what percentage airborne was. And you want to be a paratrooper, rah, 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 hard charger. And he was in the same selection class as me and he didn't make it. He quit. I always, uh, again, you know, I wonder, I, you know, for me, I wonder how I would have done it. I, I'd like to think that I have that mindset. I think I've had it throughout my career. But, you know, again, it's just you, you, everybody performs differently under stress and pressure, right? Uh, and, and you know, there, there are certain ways that th- their mind reacts that, you know, you can't ever really forecast. And, and I agree. I've seen, I've seen the biggest, baddest guys duck when the first bullet flies and i've seen some of the people you'd never expect them to just stand there and keep shooting no matter what um and and everybody reacts differently in that sense what was the hardest part of assessment and selection for you i'd probably say the lack of food i mean we did eat but i'm a big guy you know require a lot of calories and at that point you know i'm six four i'm 235 pounds or so you know, I, I take a lot of calories. So my stomach and all that, I, I was sucking. But at the same time, I was just focused on what I needed to do. And I was pretty well prepared. I mean, here's a funny story is going through and signing up with that 18 x-ray contract. Of course, the military recruiters, they're like, oh, you're just going to come off the street and be a Green Beret. Yeah, right. So at the recruiting station, we were doing a pre-PT test. It's early in the morning. And the dew's on the ground, and there's this big, huge, giant night crawler. And this sergeant's walking through the line of all the new recruits, and he's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, he got to me, and I was like, I'm going to be a Green Beret. He laughed at me. He's like, oh, yeah, you're going to be a Green Beret. Why don't you eat that big night crawler on the ground? Without hesitation, I reached down. I grabbed that night crawler, threw it in my mouth, chewed it up, and he looked at me with these big eyes like, um, that wasn't an order, you know. And I'm like... I know, but I'm serious about being a Green Beret. And he goes, you're crazy. You just might make it. <laughs> That's an awesome story. Uh, I would pass on the Nightcrawler for the record. Yeah. Uh, and if you do do that, squeeze it and get the dirt out before you put it in your mouth. I learned that in Sear School. <laughs> yeah. By the way, uh, it's a George Boyd. I say it to everybody. That's the one school I wish I could have gone to in the military. I would go now if they offered me a chance. I would love to go to Sear School. I don't know why. I just think it's probably one of the best mind bleep schools that the military offers. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's the best worst school there is. It, it's, it is about your mental capacity um, and how you, how you, you view survival, right. More than anything else. Um, and, and as much as I guess FAA, and I don't know for sure, obviously, but you know, test your metal in certain ways as does buds and everything else. I just look at Sears school as, a course that everybody in the military could take and should take. Um, and you'll really find out what you're made of, because you know what? Some of the strongest people in the world can still survive as POWs, right? And some of the weakest people can survive as POWs. It, it, it's not about that. And, and I know the same thing as Green Berets. It's not necessarily about your physical strength or your, your, your capacity to lift things or run far or swim fast or whatever. But a lot of it is just about how, how you view it. So anyway, diatribe done. All right. So you get through selection. You go to the Q course. Did you know what uh, what did you want to specialize in as a Green Beret? Yes, I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to do construction because of my background and experience. And I figured I'd be the greatest asset for that. And when I went through the 18 Charlie or the engineer course, I actually helped with a lot of the construction and teaching and sharing, like doing stairs and numbers and rafters and things like that. 
So there was a huge benefit, especially for me coming off the street. I had to learn all the small unit tactics. I had to learn all the army stuff. So the engineer phase was like a little bit of a breather for me. I still had to do the army stuff and had to do the PT things and all that that comes with it. But when it came to construction or learning electricity, granted, I didn't know all about explosives. That was always fun doing advanced cutting charges or steel cutting charges or, you know, that's the one thing I really miss, which is playing with the uh, explosives. I can go shooting, but I can't just go to the range and, you know, grab some C4. Everybody misses blowing stuff up. Uh, were you the guy who, who got the debt cord fused to, to right to the second, like you could count it down and know exactly when it was happening? Absolutely. And I made sure everybody on my team could do that and cross-train. Wow. Uh, yeah, I just like to sit there and watch the explosion. That was always fun for me. Um, all right, so after the Q course, you get right to 7th group. Um, uh, how long do you get treated like the FNG? I'm just curious. So did your age sort of make you speed through that whole process where you sort of have to get christened and hazed a little bit as the FNG when you get to your team? Yeah, everybody does. Everybody does. I don't care how old you are because they have people all different ages coming in because you got guys that have been in the Army 10, 12 years that finally went through selection and show up. So you're always a cherry. You can't get away from it. And honestly, you shouldn't because it is a different culture in special forces. It really is. And how you have to work and how you have to be a part of every little thing and know everything. It's not just your lane. Like everything's your lane. We have subject matter experts, but there's only two combo guys on the team. So if something goes down or something happens, guess what? Someone else needs to know how to use that radio. We all need to be medics, you know. We all need to know how to breach a door. So I made, you know, little door charges with debt cord for everybody on the team and handed them out. And that's what a good ODA does. We all just, we're force multipliers. We cross train and we make shit happen. Um, when it comes to like the time that this all took from the time, when the time you enlisted to the time you got the seventh group, what are we talking? Two years, three years? Um, it was right about two years. Yeah. Okay. So I was in group in 05. All right, so you you officially enlisted in in two thousand three from start to finish. Yes, I was just curious. Some people, I mean, that's fairly fast, all things considered. Considering you had to go through, you know, basic AIT, airborne assessment selection, the Q course, and then finally getting in a two year span. That's a lot of schooling in a short amount of time. Um, so yeah, it was drinking from a fire hose, definitely. I can say the least. Um, so you land in South America. Where in South America did you end up? Just out of curiosity. Well, South America was kind of funny. There's a story that goes with the um, Kalama Chile trip that we were going to do. I trained up the team. We were actually doing an HMA mission. We went out to Fort Leonard Wood and we were prepping. Um, HMA is humanitarian mine action for those that don't know. And got my in-country driver's license, got everything ready to roll. And my team sergeant pulls me aside and he's like, hey, guess what? you're going to support us from the rear on this one because you're going to ASOT, Advanced Special Operations Techniques. I'm like, what? I don't want to go. This is my first team deployment. You know, like, rah, rah, rah. He's like, listen, I'm the team sergeant. You do what I say, and you're going to thank me later. And no kidding, I, Dean, you're out there. Dean Mike Sell, awesome guy. Thank you once again. I've seen him afterwards and thanked him because doing that advanced special operations techniques course opened up the world for me and made me more effective for when we went to Afghanistan. Cause well, that's why he sent me there because he's like, we need somebody that can run the Intel and do things on the ground because we knew our next deployment, you know, the South America one was a quick little, you know, two, three month deployment. And then we were rolling into Afghanistan for most of all of 07. So he was like, I need you to do that. So reluctantly, I went and did it, but I'm grateful in the end. And he was absolutely right. What was the best part about that that course? The best part about that course was realizing situational awareness, demeanor, and just how much networking and gathering information can affect the battlefield. If you can get to know who's who in your AO or area of operations, and who's doing what effectively you can cut the head off the snake, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and listen, all that information it needs to be synchronized and, and aggregated at some point in time to, uh, to be used effectively. I just, um, you know, I, uh, 
I've learned this over the course of my career. Um, and, and, you know, civilians don't understand as military people do, but the battlefield is always three dimensional. Right. And, and there are different levels of, of connectivity that need to happen in order for things to operate efficiently. I talked to so many, um, you know, air force guys who, you know, and, and even army guys who call on airstrikes and everything. And I'm like, I don't know how you do it. My mind doesn't work in that third dimension, at least not from a combat perspective. It does strategically. Like I understand the concept, but the actual doing of that action to me seems like advanced calculus, man. Like I just, you know, that's one of those things I, I, my, my brain doesn't work that way. It's very linear. It works straight ahead. We're left and right. You know, like what's our 360 view here and and how we stay alive there. But um, some of that other stuff is beyond me. And, and that information uh, that you get, I think is, is really, you know, for the people who haven't can understand it and process it and put it into actionable terms. Like that to me really is, is those people are gold. Well, thanks. Yeah. And absolutely calling in cash or, you know, close air support is not easy. And the other thing I will tell you about the advanced special operations and the capabilities of an ODA or operational detachment alpha is what I was doing with my team is we were finding out who the bad guys were building a target packet, you know, casing, doing recon, and then going and getting them. There's nothing more rewarding than figuring out who the bad guy is and then going and kicking in his door or blowing in his door and going and grabbing him out of bed. A lot of people just are handed, you know, oh, here's your mission, go do this. Oh, here's your target packet, go do that. When you build your own packets and you can actually affect your AO directly like that, it's incredible. And it was one of the most rewarding things I did. And I was amazed the support and the guys around me and the things that we were able to accomplish in 07. It was, it was incredible. All right, well, let's get to it because you, you said you knew where you were going. You knew what your mission was. What was it as you entered Afghanistan in 2007? Well, one of the things we were worried about in the RC East or the coast province where I was at, I was actually all over. I went to Gardez too, and we, we bounced around. So I was with 7th Group, 2nd Battalion, or SOTA 7-2 on OEF-10. And we were really trying to stop the infrastructure, the financiers, and obviously the IED makers, because that was our biggest threat. A lot of them, especially us being the bearded ones, they didn't want to get in a straight up tick or fight with us because they knew we had the will to fight and they'd get their ass handed to them. So they'd take pop shots and this and that, but they would love to put in the IEDs. We had a route torch. I mean, I went down that road one time and there was a crater. Like I said, I'm tall, 6'4". I got out and I stood in it and I could like barely see out of the hole. It was that big. We lost a lot of people to IEDs or getting hurt most of the time. It was horrible. I was on the KG Pass actually doing um, an ASO mission, Intel stuff with, uh, let's see, I don't know how much I, like, I was out on this road. I wasn't with the full unit. I was doing, you know, information gathering, human, and right in front of us, boom, V-bed goes off, attack on the provincial governor. And it's just me and my buddy, and we look at each other, and we're like, all right, where do we go from here? Like, do we engage, or do we go back to get with the team and, like, mount up and do it? Like, and it was just – it was chaos. But, you know, we did what we got to do. I, I'll ask this because, again, this is your first combat experience. Um, how prepared did you feel for it when you when you entered there? I mean, you've That's been a great question, Mark. And I will tell you, I think I felt more prepared because of the Q course and the timing when I went in. So going in in 03, the Green Berets that were my cadres were one of them, you know, was part of the horse soldiers. Another one was on Triple Nickel, that famous team, you know, fifth group guys that were part of the initial evasion. And they prepped us really, really well. I mean, super well. I couldn't have asked for better cadre. I mean, they kicked our ass. They smoked the shit out of us. But we knew what we were getting into. They were like, it's the wild, wild west. And you need to be prepared to, you know, do what you got to do and protect our brothers. Because they knew we were the guys that were going back to group that they just left. So we were going to be with their teammates and brothers. So they definitely, I mean, they ran us through the ringer. Well-deservingly so, too, because it it's no joke being in war, as you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I always am curious, and, and 
I've had to learn this the hard way, as I'm sure you did. The, the, the gap between training and reality and combat sometimes is big. Sometimes it's small, but there's always a gap, you know, um, even the best laid plans, right? So oh, uh, in your first kind of interaction in combat, your first you know time you were in contact, um, in retrospect, when you look back on it, how big was the gap? Well, I, I'm again, I'm going to say the Q course was amazing. I mean, Robin Sage is the biggest unconventional warfare exercise in the world. Now, the biggest thing is you don't get the snaps from the rounds, you know, going by and here in that other side, the two, two-way range. Um, but overall, they, they did an amazing job. Now, the intensity and the duration, I think one of the biggest things for me being a cherry going down range was I was expecting every day to be a nonstop war zone gunfight. And it's not, you know what I mean? It's, you get the breaks and the lulls. It's like anything, you know, you never know when it's going to come. So your hair is always standing up on the back of your neck. And I was always afraid of the IED going off and not having a fight. You know, I always felt like if I had the chance to, you know, shoot, move and communicate, we'd be all right. I always was worried about, because I'd seen it happen. We had a truck that was in front of us, the ASG, that used to be ASF, the Afghan security forces, and then Afghan security guards. Those were our local nationals that we worked with. And I mean, I had to, being the 18 Charlie, so digressing here a little bit of my, my mission and responsibilities, I was responsible for all like the property books and property and logistics. So we lost a vehicle that was a lead vehicle, got hit and it was devastated and we had to like clean it out. And then I had to like take pictures to show that it was destroyed so we could write it off. And I mean, there was like brain matter and chunks of flesh and things in there, you know, but that's, that's why I was nervous about an IED because you just don't have a chance and you just kind of roll with it. Like if it's my fate, it's going to happen. And I know a lot of the SF guys I served with kind of have already come to peace. We're like, Hey, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die, whatever. We're all going to die. I'm going to die with meaning or I'm going to die with honor. And your biggest fear in combat is that you mess up and you get one of your buddies killed. That is every guy I served with. That was their mindset is they weren't worried about themselves. Really? It was, if I F up and I get my buddy killed, that's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. You know, if I die saving him or doing this or that, that's what, you know, our mindsets were. So when I went in, I, I was honestly, I accepted that I may die. And I was like, Hey, could happen. I'm going to die anyways. You know, someday it's going to happen. If, if you don't accept your own mortality in combat, you'll drive yourself crazy. Uh, and you'll never be able to fight effectively. That's, you know, uh, and I was fortunate, you know, personal anecdote, I, everybody knows this who listens to the show. I deployed with the SF guys. I'm not a tabbed guy and, and you know, uh, never even had the opportunity to do it, but, I learned so much uh, from those guys. And back to what you talked about with the IEDs, I tell you, you know, their tactics, techniques, and procedures for the way they ran convoys kept me alive. Um, You know, I was outside the wire four or five days a week. I was running logistics convoys for the ISOF brigade and for fifth and 10th group at the time, um, back and forth. And the only thing that kept me alive was they basically said, no, 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 screw this here. Here's our handbook on how to do how to run a convoy. This is what you do. Don't do anything else other than this. Speed is your friend. Surprise and speed. Go out there, porcupine effect. Don't be a soft target. Keep hauling ass. Got it. Easy. Simple. I can do that. Um, yeah. And I remember, you know, flying past American convoys, traveling at about 11 miles an hour, you know, with the gunner down in his hatch, you know, b- below the turret, just with a little oh. helmet popping up going, and I'm sitting there going, dude, you're begging to be shot at. Uh, yep. nope. See you. We're, we're going to haul ass and we're going to move. Um, so, I, I, you know, those guys taught me how to survive. Um, but to the same respect, I was with you. you know, every time you went outside the wire, you didn't, who knows? I mean, I ran over two IEDs, survived in both, not really sure how. Because um, they weren't like, they were, they were more, just, they, they were intended to disable a vehicle and then it'd be unloaded on by people on the side of the road. Um so, you know, it just, uh, you had a little bit more survivability as opposed to these huge, you know, gas can one five, five rounds that would just, you know, be, make the biggest, you know, ball of fire going to the sky. But 
you know, again, I, I, I think that there is a semblance for me, at least when you talk about resigning the fact you're going to die, if you're going to hit an ID, there's not much you can do to prevent it. I mean, yes, you have your head on a swivel and you're looking for everything on the side of the road and something that looks different. But beyond that, you know, I, it was easy for me to just keep moving. If I keep moving and keep hauling ass, that was my best, my best friend uh, out there. Uh, that and being able to jump the median and run on the other side of the road, which the other American convoys never did, which we always did. Um, you know, watch the road part like the Red Sea, right? Anybody who didn't get out of the road, they had bad intentions and you knew it from the start. So uh, yeah, absolutely, an effective technique across the way. And it's it's fun driving into oncoming traffic when you're the biggest vehicle out there, right? <laughs> no, it totally is. It really is. And that's one of the things, like, we get a reputation sometimes as being cowboys or doing things like crazy. But there's methods to the madness, like you're saying. Having that speed, having that unpredictable, you know, where are they going now? What? They just cut across. That's where nobody drives there. Well, guess what? If they never think you're going to drive there, they're not going to plan an IED. They're going to plan an IED where, hey, we think they go here. And don't go to the same place twice or at the same time. You know, yeah, you may be able to use that route again. But we'd wait and let that route be dormant for a while before we'd use it again. You know, so, yeah, the, the TTPs are very important, and I think they need to be shared more. Yeah, well, again, uh, after 20 years, you know, we, we it, was a, it was a nonstop chess match. We did A, they did B. Then we did C, and they did D. I mean, it was just round and round we went, uh, at least in Iraq for both my deployments there, uh, for, for 11 years, just waiting to try to figure out, you know, what the hell this whole thing is going to look like. Um, so regardless, you know, uh, when, when you get, were on that deployment to return to the subject, um, did you end up, did you end up losing anybody? Did anybody get, get hit or anything? Not on my team, but my company. Yeah. We lost uh mass sergeant art Lilly and he was in my company. I actually was at his fire base and supporting and did it same exact mission he did, but like a month later and it, it was rough because he was close. I mean, you're in a company together. You do company training. You all know each other, and it's group. So, yeah, we we lost Art, and that, that was a tough loss because he, he was very experienced, senior. I mean, he was the team sergeant. You know, he was the senior enlisted on that ODA and had multiple deployments, but you never know your fate. And, that, I mean, I carry him with me on my arm along with some other buddies, you know, right here, and – I'll never forget him, and he was amazing, and he used to give me shit if I drink beer in his team room. How uh, how, how did you handle that? I mean, it, it, not only initially, but as the deployment went on. You kind of just accept it. You get angry. I mean, you definitely get angry, and you want to get even, but you just get hyper-focused on your job. I wanted to be the best I could for my team, for my country, for our mission, and it's that hyper vigilance and hyper focus, which some people have a hard time when you come back here to the States and it's different, you know, it's not the same thing. And there's so much more where downrange, you're living in the moment day to day here, things start adding up, piling on, and it's, it's just a different world. And it, it takes a mindset shift. You know, some people say they can flip the switch on and off. Other people have a harder time flipping the switch. Speaking of flipping switches, uh, I'm curious about this because I ask this question often um, for you. Never having been in combat before and you get to Afghanistan, um, you know, the, the concept of pulling the trigger is easy in training. The concept of pulling the trigger in combat is a little bit different itself just from the standpoint of, you know, that round's not coming back, and guess what? It's intended to hurt somebody, and there's a there's a mental capacity to that that not everybody has. What was that experience for you? I I just accepted it. You know, I knew when I was coming in. Like I told you, I was older. I turned 28 in basic training. Like I went there prepared to do everything I needed to do. I didn't sign up for college payments. I didn't, you know, sign up to just oh get out of my house. Like I signed up to get the bad guys. I personally wanted to get Osama bin Laden. Like I wanted and hoped and prayed when I was out at the pack border and doing things, I was like, please let him come through. Please let me get, you know, like I wanted to get him. And, you know, that I, I was ready. I don't know how else to explain it. No. And, and listen, I, I think that's fair. Um, everybody just handles it differently. Um, 
that deployment ends, you get back and you get out within a year. Why? Uh, my first wife. So I had a great warrant officer. My first wife had, she had um, seen some of the guys that didn't come back or knew one of my good friends, Josh Whitaker. God bless you, Josh. She used to get a ride to the airport with him and everything. And he got killed on that uh, deployment and she wanted to have a family. And she's like, I don't want to be a single mother and I don't want you being gone. I've seen this SF lifestyle. I mean, she followed me when I went in the military. Like I, I left her up in Massachusetts when I joined, I was like, Hey, I have to do this. Like I left my family. I left my girlfriend, I left, but she came down and she followed me. So I was like, you know what? She changed her life for me and let me do this and now she wants to you know move forward and my jose santiago chaka as he's known warrant officer he um pulled me aside he's like dan you can get in the contracting world right now still participate be in the fight but you can call the shots you sign up for whatever contract you want and your wife is for life the army train is you know it's going to kick you off or you're going to fall off at some point you know you got combat experience you got ASOT, the human intelligence stuff. He goes, you're prime. You're in your mid-30s now. He's like, you're exactly what the contracting world is. He goes, if you were close to retirement, I'd say stay, re-enlist. He goes, but you're at that sweet spot right now. And then I went and talked to my sergeant major, Bobby Cinco. God bless you, Bobby. Love you, brother, if you are listening to this. And he was like, Dan, don't ever feel bad about what you did. I'm like... Well, I mean, I feel like, cause at that point I'm the senior Charlie in my company or engineer and I'm mentoring the younger guys. I'm not the cherry anymore. And he's like, I went to the Sergeant major Academy with Sergeant majors that never have been downrange or went to war. He goes, you signed up in a time of war, went to combat and came back. Don't ever feel bad. And those two higher up leadership in my company, there were, they've helped me with the kind of like abandonment or guilt. Like I've heard people talk about survivor's guilt. I felt guilty for a while and still do occasionally. I'm still fighting that. Like I left my team and I was talking to them and they were back in Afghanistan. And I had a few of them like, man, we miss you. We wish you were here. You know, I had a friend call me actually in a tick and I put it on speakerphone because I wanted my wife and son to know what a tick was like and they heard you know rounds going and whatnot and i'm like are you okay tommy you doing good he's like oh i'm doing great that, 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 that. you know rounds are going up my wife's like oh my god your friends are crazy and i was just like that's that's how sf guys are you know and but so yeah getting out was was tough but you know everything happens for a reason i've been able to work with so many different units um Worked with the Navy SEALs, Coronado, multiple SEAL teams. SEAL Team 7 was the last one I worked with. I've worked with, you know, plenty of Green Berets across all groups. Uh, worked MARSOC. I did five years with MARSOC before I um, started working with Kid Rock again, which that's a funny story in itself because I actually met him in 2008. And I haven't, you know, been working for him the whole time. I did two years when I first got out and then... I did two years now that I'm down in Nashville. So it's, it's been interesting. Did you, how did you meet him then? So going back to getting out. So in 07, I had my, um, what was it? My 32nd birthday was in Afghanistan. Like literally I was running missions, kicking doors in and getting guys when I turned 32. So I just gotten af off active duty and I was like, you know what? We're going to have a good birthday, go out. So we went to the Bahamas. And I show up on my birthday in the Bahamas, on the beach, Atlantis Resort, Paradise Island. And I hear all this music. I'm like, oh, sweet. It's my birthday. I'm going to go party, have some beers or drinks, whatever. Drink some rum on the beach, listen to some music. So I'm walking along the beach going to check out, you know, where this club is or whatnot. It's not a club. It's Kid Rock, who's passionate about music, jamming tunes in his private cabana. And I look over, I'm like, man. That's Kid Rock. You know what? I got to at least say thank you for all he does to support the troops. So I walk up. I'm like, hey, Rock, I want to thank you for, you know, all the stuff you do for the military. And he looked at me and I'm just off active duty and whatnot. So I kind of looked apart. He's like, are you in? I'm like, actually, I just got out. He's like, well, so what are you doing in the Bahamas? I'm like, well, it's my birthday today. And last year I was in Afghanistan. 
And he's like, it's your birthday. Let me buy you a drink. Thank you for your service. And he's going on and on about thanking me for my service. And I'm going on and on about thanking him for all he does. Next thing you know, he's like, hey, you want to come to dinner with me? We go to dinner. Then we go to the casino. We're partying all night. He finally gets out. Because I didn't tell him I was special forces in the beginning. Because, you know, we're quiet professionals. I'm not like, hey, I'm a Green Beret, Rock. You know, so we party all night. I'm saying goodbye when the sun's coming up to go back to my room. And I'm like, thank you. I really got to party like a rock star. Everybody says they get to party like a rock star, but I actually did it. He looks me straight in the eye and he goes, do it again tomorrow. I'm like, what? Do it again tomorrow. He goes, yeah, I got the same cabana and everything. I'll be there. Just swing by. We'll do it again. So that one trip turned into three nights of hanging out. The last night, some guy was drunk in the casino, acting a fool. I stepped in, you know, and I was feeling good. I mean, I wasn't drunk but i was feeling good and not gonna let anybody do anything stupid to him and try and get a lawsuit or whatnot so i get him in the limo and i go up to the guy i'm like this is gonna end badly if you don't you know stop right now and i'm a good sized dude and he listened and he left then i get in the limo with rock and he's like dan that was pretty good you got a job and one thing led to another and he offered me a job and then i worked for him for two years in between the contracting training when he needed me and things slowed down and I ended up just going full-time contracting work. We maintained what? a friendship when did and he you- actually stood up in my wedding when I married my second wife because the first wife didn't work out as a lot of uh, SF army, you know, marriages don't work out, but it's all for the best. I'm very happy now, wife, three kids. And yeah, he stood up at my wedding as one of the groomsmen. I didn't tell anybody either, not even my mother. So like showing up at the wedding, you know, my wife's friends like that guy kind of looks like Kid Rock. Okay. And then they're like, no, it is Kid Rock. They're like, what? Yeah. Dan used to work for him doing security years ago, you know, but then I moved to Nashville and he now has moved to Nashville from Detroit. And he's like, Hey, you're back down here. You want to come on board again? We got history. I trust you. I could use you again. And I talked to my wife. Kim's like, yeah, I like Bobby. He's a good guy. Do it up. So for the last couple of years, I've been back doing security for Kid Rock all around wherever we go. That's insane. Uh, did you ever, when did you ever, t- did you ever tell me you were Green Beret? When did, did it ever come up a conversation? Uh, that night. Yeah. That first night later on, because he's like, come on, what'd you do? What'd you do? Where were you deployed? You know, he's, he's prying and testing and seeing me and, you know, it, so I told him and he's like, why didn't you say that? I'm like, cause I'm not going to just brag about that. Like even still today, like, one of the people that I met about my book and she's like, you didn't say you were a green beret. Cause I just told her about the asset mindset. And then she read it and she's like, I didn't know you were a green beret. Well, that's not how I lead when I meet people, you know, like, hi, I'm Dan Fielding, former green beret. Nice. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, the kid rock stuff is, is great. I want to, I want to get back to it here in a minute, but I do want to do some of the contracting work because when you look at um, the stuff that you did in your contracting time, um, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this is high level, especially with Marsoc, this is high level stuff here, man. I mean, you know, you talk about, you mentioned earlier about nothing better than building a targeting package and be able to go execute it. I mean, that's, you know, the core of what you were, you, you were doing for a long time for a lot of units downrange. Oh, absolutely. To, to be able to help people. And I'd had people that had had more deployments than me. Like there was this one gunnery sergeant in Marsoc. I think he'd had five deployments. And after I worked with him, he was thanking me so much for how much I was able to help him and his mission. And, and I'm like, man, no problem. I'm just doing my job, sharing what I learned downrange when I was doing this stuff, you know, and he was just that that was so rewarding that still seeing that even though I wasn't directly in the fight slinging lead or, you know, breaching doors anymore, that I was having an impact and I knew the guys that were conducting these next missions were going to be better prepared. I had a colonel one time thank me that his unit was so much better. That was down in uh, Fort Hood. You know, we ran them through an exercise, and he's like, they're, they're totally different. Because we were doing KLEs for that one. I was teaching them how to run key leadership engagements. And understanding the dynamic of those personal relationships when you're dealing with someone downrange in a combat zone, a lot of people just get that tunnel vision 
where they're like, all right, my mission, they don't step back and look at the big picture in different angles. So a quick example of this is I had a commander that was supposed to be doing a route recon mission and he was meeting with one of the local leaders and they wanted the well. The commander's like, you need to tell me about these routes. You know, what's going on, which routes are safe. And he's like, well, I want a well. I want a well. And I was like, hey, how about you tell him that you want to do the well, but you need to drive equipment out here to drill the well. And you can, like, need to know which roads are safer. And I got to bring these big machines down which roads can handle tracked vehicles or you can get your route recon through that don't just ask directly be assertive and he was like wow all right and it changed the game uh a lot of what i i've noticed um in your contractor work a lot of it is sort of like instructor or a, an evaluator and exercise and things of that nature i mean did you in, particularly enjoy that role per se because a lot of guys um you know, who are, who are fighters and, you know, get to do the actual, like you talked about slinging lead and kicking down doors and everything else. They see instructor time is downtime, right? It takes them out of the fight, but um, you know, there's also value in downloading all that information and passing it on to other people. What about that, you know, idea really kind of kept you going back for it over and over again. What kept me going back is I was still surrounded by my brothers. I was still surrounded by warriors. I could open, up and share stories they could open up and share stories i was in the community so a lot of people as you know when people get out they lose that so by doing the contracting and evaluating and those types of roles i was still there now i wasn't downrange and i did i mean there's nothing like the adrenaline of doing live missions and landing on a hot lz or going into a building and you don't know what's going to happen like that is absolutely adrenaline filling and there, there's no more like I feel alive other than like when I've had my children and I had my daughter come alive in my hands because I've helped birth both my daughters I was there I was the, the catcher so but yeah it's something that being in the evaluator role kept me in the community or that instructor stuff made me feel like I was helping and I could see the results like when someone looks you in the eye and thanks you, and especially men of that caliber, and they're genuine, you're like, "All right, God, I got it. I'm I'm doing the right thing." You know, I I, I um I, I think when it comes to you know the instructor world, there's also a, um a level of relatability that you know when you walk the path that you have um, for people that that brings it to it, um, and you talk about that connection. You know, I, I think also that kind of it, it's your way to be in the fight without being in the fight. And it, it's also just, a, a, as you said, I think that connection is so underrated, you know, um, even to this day, like uh, I, I enjoy going back and sitting with ROTC cadets and just having conversations. Right. I mean, it's been 20 plus years, but, you know, their ability to kind of see something in the future as either a goal or just, you know, a path um, makes it a lot clearer for them. And you providing that, I think. You know, I know when I went through my pre-combat training, I never had any guys like that. That's why the gap was so big, right? The, you helped close that gap by your experience and downloading it and giving it to other people. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree. It's so important. And that's what happened to me when I came in at the time period I did, like I said. All the Green Berets that trained me had just come from you know, Afghanistan and the invasion and Iraq had just kicked off, you know, a year later. So these were all war hardened warriors that were not messing around. And I like to think I'm one of the, you know, we all say that I was the last hard class or whatnot, but there was really a huge transition. Like I've had two of my cadre were Vietnam vets that talked about Vietnam and everybody else was a fresh, you know, OEF, OIF veteran. So it was people that knew their stuff. And it was not that, I don't know what's going on. It wasn't just all eighties people that, you know, the training army, so to speak, and not to knock anybody that served, you only know what you know. And I come in at that time, I'd be the same way, you know? So there's definitely differences, but I was blessed with timing. I was blessed with the people I came in with. Other guys with the 18 x-ray contract, 
I mean, I served with Tim Kennedy, you know, he was a UFC fighter. We were in the same seer school. We sparred, you know, like we went to the same group. Like he's an amazing person. There's other people that were a museum curator. He was in the reserves, but he was like, you know what? 9-11 happened. Um, leaving the museum. He was, I think in Minnesota, he was a historical museum curator left that and went back full time and went in with an 18 x-ray contract. Another guy that was an 18 Charlie, his sister died in the twin towers. He worked for NASA. Like he was literally a rocket scientist and he came in and went special forces. So the people that I was just blessed to be with, like I've walked among heroes and I still feel that way. And I will feel that way to the day I died. I mean, die. it's like a blessing to be around people like that. And they have meaning. Like another gentleman I talk about, Rami Camargo, he was one of my friends and mentors. We went through a school together, but I talk about him in my book is having the asset mindset. He got shot in the neck, C2, C3. Totally, you know, he's in a wheelchair now. He could have given up. I mean, this guy was a ranger. He was a warrant officer, Green Beret. He was a badass warrior. He is running Stay in Step Institute. He's the CEO director of it. And he's still giving back and has the mindset and helping other people walk and learn to recover from their injuries. He's taken knowledge that he has and he's still using his brain and has the mindset to make a difference in the world. He could have sat home 100% disabled for the rest of his life and be like, oh, my life sucks. Oh, what was me? No, he's still out there. They're actually having a gala in September. I think it's September 23rd that he's doing and running. So anybody that's dealing with stuff, you can overcome it if you get the right mindset. And again, I've been blessed to be around people that shared that type of mindset with me and helped me grow my own mindset so that I could be strong. That's great stuff. I mean, it really is. Um, and, and I get to the book here in a minute. I just wanted to know in reference to, you know, you, you referenced uh, going back to work for Kid Rock the whole time. I mean, there was, was there anything else in that contractor, you know, operational community that, re, that you were in that, um, at the same time, it's sort of gone away. Is that just because Iraq was over, Afghanistan was officially over, you know, in 2021, that those, those sort of jobs dried up or were they still available to you? Oh, they're still available. I mean, I, I could still do them, but what I do now with Rock is I, he's down the street from me. You know, I don't live too far away. Uh, yeah, I have some days that I'm gone, but when I was attached to an active duty, like my wife would be, alone and a single mother with three kids for three months at a time for six weeks for eight weeks or whatever it was that I was gone and that was really hard on her especially as my son started to get older my son's 16 so you know an older boy pressuring with his mom trying to get away with stuff dad's not in the house and I just you know my family's important I have my military family but I have my immediate family too and I try and look out for them all all right, uh, let's get to the book here, The Asset Mindset. Um, you know, you have all this experience. Obviously, you, you know, you have your, your personal combat experience. And, you know, hey, there's Kid Rock in the equation. But um, you want to write this book, why? Well, it's actually very closely associated with the Special Forces as far as De Oppressor Libir, our Latin for to free from oppression or free the oppressed. That motto, I am now taking into the civilian world. I think people oppress themselves with their own thinking. So I'm trying to take De Oppressor Liber out to people so that they can stop oppressing themselves with their own mindset. Stop this, oh, I'm a victim and the victim mentality or the snowflake stuff that's going on and all these crybabies. Like, suck it up, buttercup. Embrace the suck. Get out there. Get your mind right. Realize you are the biggest influence in your life more than anybody else. That's what I'm teaching people. Like you need to know that no one's going to influence your life more than you positively or negatively. Do you want your life to be better? Then you better do the work. You want to be healthier, eat healthier. You want to be stronger, go to the gym. You want to be smarter, read a book, study. You want a different job. You want to live somewhere. Well, nobody's going to move you for you. You got to get out there. So that's part of the asset mindset philosophy. And then I try and teach people that you need to have a team like myself being on an ODA and being on a team was an amazing asset and benefit. So that's the second point is you want to surround yourself with positive people 
and assets in your life and have environments that are assets as well. If you want to be an actor, you better go where actors are working or live or go to the theater and get to know them and learn from them. You can't sit at home on the couch and expect someone to knock on your door and be like, hey, I have this role for you to be an actor or whatever your goal or dream is. And then the third point of the asset mindset philosophy is that then you need to be giving to others. You need to be an asset for others. And when you're an asset for others and helping other people, that comes back. That whole saying, the more you give, the more you receive is absolutely true. And I've seen it. And that comes from gratitude. I think that's a big reason why Kid Rock and I hit it off because I was being full of gratitude, thanking him for his service. He was thanking me for my service. And that's where it went from. And it grew from there. And all dreams and doors will open when you have the right mindset and you think the right way and you're making the right decisions. You'll be amazed. I never thought a guy like me coming from a small town would be a you know special forces soldier and work for celebrities and no kid rock now be it a best-selling author like never would have imagined it but you know what you put time in you put effort in and things can happen no matter who you are of all the courses that you went through uh is there one more than the other that sort of the asset mindset leads to Ooh, geez i would probably geez that's tough i mean individually it would definitely be Sear School. As a whole, absolutely Robin Sage. So the asset mindset philosophy is something that it affects the whole world and everything around you, but it starts within yourself. And a big part of it too that I want people to understand is that you don't have to be a special forces soldier to have the asset mindset. Kid Rock does not have the asset mindset, but he knew that he could make things happen. People said, oh, you're a hip hop rapper. You can never go to country or do classical. You know what? He didn't let other people limit himself. He went out there and made things happen. So the key is you don't have to be special forces to have the asset mindset. But if you want to be special forces, you better have the asset mindset because you won't make it otherwise. Considering you didn't know how to write a book, how did you go about the whole entire process? (laughs) It's a great question. It was a lot of the army in me. You know, you learn going through the different courses you talked about going through the Q course. Look, I, I wanted to learn so oh. much stuff. <laughs> what? Backwards planning, right? I want to write a book. Here's the end. <laughs> it is book and I'll <laughs> beginning, right? Uh, I, I yeah. can't cut you off, but you know, that, that, that's uh, army planning one-on-one. Yeah. But no, honestly, that's what it was. I studied how to write. Like I didn't just start writing. A lot of people say, oh, put pen to paper. No. How do you be a writer? So I learned how to, you know, do an outline. I learned different techniques for writing. That's why I, through my book, I don't just talk about, oh, you need to have this mindset or that mindset. I use short stories to explain and show and share the actual, the the results of having the asset mindset. And then I talk about how you can apply it in your life. Then I'll go to a different story. You know, I have Rami's story in there. I get stories from my mom, I got stories of another soldier who shot in the face and kept going. My buddy, James, who just retired from Delta Force. Like there's so much in there. And it's amazing to me, the different stories that relate to different people. They'll pick one out and it, it's something that just connects with them or where they are in their moment in time. But the most amazing thing to me about my book, honestly, is that it's changing people's lives across all ages. I had a 92 year old woman tell me I was doing a book signing at an Elks club. And she goes, your book changed my life. I'm like, you're 92. How did it change your life? She goes, I went back out there and I got a job. My children didn't want me to. They said I was too old. And I said, I get the mindset to do what I want. And I want to get back out there. And she did it. 92. I had a 15 year old that handled death of his Nana better because I talk about the experience of losing my dad in the book. And how to overcome that obstacle mentally and try and look at the positive and stay focused on the good things, not the bad things. And that helped him with the loss of his Nana. Like, that's incredible. I'm helping 14-year-olds. I'm helping 92-year-olds. I never expected this. And this is one of the things that in my maturity and getting older is realizing the pen is mightier than the sword. After 9-11, I was all sword. I wanted to go out there and just crush the bad guys. Now I'm realizing I can shape and do more positive good in the world through the pen and through this book. It's happening. 
You know, the, the feedback has got to be incredible um, in knowing that, you know, but really, I guess it shouldn't be that surprising because you've spent the past 15 years prior to writing the book. All you did was download information for other people to use the way that they needed to. And that's really all the book is, right? It's just the information that you've learned and you're downloading it for other people to read and take advantage of uh, the way you did. So um, hearing those the, the, you know, verbal reviews from the book is not surprising. Uh, but what was what's the hardest part about writing a book for you? The hardest part is editing. When oh. you have to edit, people don't understand how involved editing is with the book. At least I didn't. Maybe some people do know, but I did not know. Because you change a paragraph, you change a word, or you move a paragraph from one section to another. You go, oh, maybe this chapter would go better here instead of that chapter. And you switch the order. Guess what you have to do? You, or you don't have to, but you should do. You now need to read the book from start to finish and see if it flows and makes sense. Oh, well, then you make some more changes. Now you got to read the book from start to finish. So the, the editing process was a lot longer. It, it took just as long to edit it as to write it. Interesting. I thought somebody got paid to edit it. <laughs> I did pay someone to edit it after I edited it, but I still needed to, I mean, I took ownership of it. It was my book. The funny thing is too, is like, Oh, who designed your cover? I did. Who wrote the blurb on the back? I did. You know, like people don't understand. That's that SF mentality. I guess like, how do I do it? I'll figure it out. Like I've spent, you know, what, maybe two or three months designing covers and looking at imagery and what works and what, you know, with the mindset, I wanted the mind, but then hand, like I'm handing you the asset mindset, finding pictures and getting that. And I'm like, all right, this is the one. Same thing with the stuff on the back. It's funny, you know, when you get questioned that, because a lot of people with publishing companies or whatnot, they're like, oh, they did it all for you. I'm like, no, didn't. And I started off self-published. I'm now published with Simon & Schuster because they liked what I was doing. They read the reviews and saw the results. I mean, most people don't get a review that the person says they're going to reread the book again and take more notes, or they're going to read it once a year because it's really helped them. Or if they're struggling, they go back and read the book because it, you know, makes it, it's kind of like a tool or a guidebook, you know, for how to live. Uh, what's harder getting through assessment selection in Q course or writing a book? <laughs> for me, I'd rather go through selection again than write another book, but uh, that doesn't mean I won't write another book. Instead, does that mean it's the end of your authoring career? Is that was it? <laughs> but I guess not. No, no, no. I, I probably that I, I got some. I'll, I'll give you a little teaser that I don't know. I, the struggle is real. It's probably going to be somewhere in the future. I'm not going to say when or whatnot because I'm busy with this one right now. But the feedback and talking with people and hearing from people and how it helps. Yes, you can have the positive mindset and have all these ways of thinking, but the struggle is real for everyone. You are a human being. You are going to deal with struggle. People you love will die. You will get sick. Bad things will happen. So you got to deal with it. And I want to help people deal with the struggles a little more in depth, I think. Has Kid Rock read the book? Yes. What was his review? It's actually right on the front cover. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, right, right down here. So... But he goes, I would not only ask you to support the asset mindset by Daniel Fielding, I will tell you it can change the path you're on for the better. I truly believe his book will improve all of our lives. Thank you for your service, Dan. God bless America. Kid Rock. Yeah, there you go. That's nice. Hey, I didn't I didn't didn't know that he wrote a uh, a little blurb on the cover. So good for you. Congratulations. He better have given you a review. I mean, <laughs> just no, to- he's been one of my biggest fans. That's I awesome. actually recorded the audio book in his studio. Really? Yeah. Guess it doesn't hurt to have friends like that, huh? No. Build I'm a good sure. team around you. That's what you're doing, right? You got good people around you. I think so. I hope so. Still trying to figure all that out, but you know that's a whole different podcast in and of itself. So again, you can get the book anywhere. Uh, you can get books Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kindle, yes. every place you can get it. Again, called the Asset Mindset. Make sure you guys check it out. Well, look, man, it's been great getting to know you. Uh, love the story. Love the passion. Love the energy. Um, and I tell you, you know, I always kind of leave each episode, you know, feeling um, one or two, you know, big themes about about the guest. Um, 
And what resonates is, again, your your ability to pass along information uh, and make it actionable for people. And that's you did that in your military career. You did that in your contracting career. You're doing it in your authoring career. And um, that's a gift, man, because not everybody can do that. Not everybody has the ability um, to translate things that are not comprehensible into the understandable. Uh, and that really Thank is you, for that. you meet people on their level. And that really is is uh, a genuine trait that I, that I hope that continues uh, not only in future books, but just, you know, in and around your life. Uh, it, it, it's been great. It, just look at the way you connected to Kid Rock, man. I mean, that's not everybody can get on that level and get people to get on that level and get to the, get them to be comfortable with you on that level. So um, that, that rings true. And I, 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 I know that will continue as you go forward to continue to do things in your personal life and in your career. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. It was, it was very humbling and I'm grateful for those words and you're a great person too. You're doing a lot of good work and it's people like us that are going to make the world a better place. And we just got to bring the other people along and they realize, you know, no matter who you are, you're watching, listen to this. You can make the world a better place. You can make your life better. You can make stuff happen. You can. 100%. Well, look, again, great getting to know you. Asset Mindset is the book. Check it out. Appreciate the time as always. Let's stay in touch, brother. Love to continue okay. to hear. Reach out anytime. You know, I I, I, I I, will be that jerk who makes a request of a personal concert for Kid Rock. No, I kid. I'm kidding. I'm joking. But, you know. Uh, anyway, if I'm ever in Nashville, brother, I'll look you up. I promise. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.